that. Well, good morning. Oh, what a great day. What a great week. Um, but just to come into this house and lift our voices, you know, it was on my mind when I was in the back praising the Lord is if, if I did this 24-7, I would never come close to giving him what he's due. And so just to kind of lock in right now and say, I don't want my mind drifting somewhere else, Lord. I want it to be on you. Um, as you know, we have a coffee bar, and it's uh, donation-based, and uh, we have a ministry. We have the Stricklands. This is uh, the Stricklands that are in Turkey, um, and the nephew and his wife, Martha's nephew. $130 came in for them. That's beyond our support every month. So how about that? $130. Scott and McGevney Strickland. And I'm telling you, they're, they're in ministry right there in Istanbul, Turkey. Not uh, one of the tourist attractions people are going to right now. But they're there with their children ministering, and it's great that you can remember them. Even if you don't use the coffee bar, just stop in and bless somebody like them. They deserve everything we can give them. Um, and this month, some of you may know that Kayaf has taken a a missions team to Sri Lanka this summer. So we decided to just make that our April focus. And uh, whatever funds come in, we'll give it to Josh and the team and those who need some support. If you have a chance to support them that are going, it's a life-changing trip to go on a missions trip. Anybody who's been on one can tell you you come back different and you remain different. That's the good part. So uh, we're just so thankful for... uh, Kayafa and what they're doing. Um, I want to just say something. It is so neat to hear Ashley's voice behind. (laughs) Brenda and I just, we just can't worship like we used to, and you know, without you helping us and encouraging us. But uh, how about welcoming Colton? This is his first Sunday, huh? I thought of him when we were saying, you do miracles so great. I was like, yes, there's miracles all in this room. And there's one right up here on the second row. So uh, praise God. So we, we've prayed for you guys so much. And uh, it's great to see what God has done for you guys. We're just so happy for you. Well, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 26, if you want to turn there. Um, I'm going to fill up April with a series of messages And the overall title is going to be Great Conversations with Jesus. And uh, it'll unfold as we go through the month. Of course, there's five Sundays, so there's going to be, you know, a title for each one. But today, um, I asked asked someone in the the kitchen area before our our greeters and ushers meeting, and uh, I said, what do you think the greatest prayer that Jesus prayed? What do you think the greatest prayer he prayed? And uh, first choice was the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's a prayer he gave his disciples to pray. That's really the disciples' prayer. But there is a prayer that Jesus prayed that's greater than any other prayer recorded in the Bible. And it's found in Matthew 26. And for this month, we're going to be dealing with great conversations. Now, you may think prayer is one way. Prayer is never meant to be one-way conversation. Prayer is supposed to be two-way. If our prayer time is only us telling God our list, 
we don't understand prayer. When Jesus talked to his father, his father communicated with him every time. It wasn't a one-way conversation that he was having in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a two-way conversation. And we know from Scripture that the father answered his prayer. Unmistakable that the father answered the prayer of his son as recorded. Now, this Gethsemane experience is found in all four Gospels. John 18 says the least about it. John records simply that they were in a garden. I don't even think he mentions it's Gethsemane, but he records some of the things that happened there with uh, the resistance of Peter with a sword, cutting Marcus's ear off, and, and uh, Jesus telling him to put up his sword and all of that. But Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, uh, Mark 14, Luke 22, all record the Gethsemane experience. So we're going to read, first of all, from Matthew 26. Consider what Matthew wrote. He said uh, to his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, as he went further into the garden, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, This is his prayer. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Notice his soul is overwhelmed. This is Jesus' words. I am overwhelmed with sorrow. I feel death. I feel death on me. I feel death in me. And he was under such a dilemma that you get the idea that when he got to the place he was going to pray, he collapsed there. It says that he fell on the ground with his face toward the ground because of that moment, the stress and the pressure upon him was enormous. This is the greatest prayer Jesus ever prayed that's recorded in the Bible. Because what was at stake in this prayer? Your salvation was at stake. My salvation was on the line. This is a prayer that everything, not just we who are in this building, but if you took that point back throughout the past, through those ancient prophecies in the 39 books that make up the Old Testament, all of those promises were on the line. Every one of them. Abraham's hope, the glory of God's grace in redeeming mankind, everything God predicted about a Savior was on the line in a one-hour intense prayer session that Jesus was engaged in. In fact, the glory of God's grace, the, the overwhelming victory over sin and over evil, all of that was on the line right there. No wonder he was under such a great load. In fact, the three years that he told these guys, stay awake, help me, pray with me, watch with me, The three years that he had invested in them was on the line when he got to the place where he collapsed and prayed. Now, we don't hear what the father says, but we kind of get an idea of what he implies to the son when you consider a passage in Hebrews. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 5, and I want to give you time to turn there. And if you don't have your Bible, you know, if if you've got a smartphone, I want you to turn there and read this because this is directly connected to Matthew 26. 
you understand that the Father was conversing with the Son. We do not know what the Father said to him because it wasn't recorded, but we do know the Father was engaged in conversation with his Son. And Jesus' prayer was answered. It says so in Hebrews chapter 5. And you'll find this in verse 7. How did, how did God answer the prayer of Jesus? Now notice, remember, you remember what he prayed first? My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not what I, what I will, but what you will. So how did he answer the prayer? This is Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He said, how do you know this is Gethsemane? Because what happens, what follows. This is how we know that this is the writer of Hebrews looking back at Gethsemane as to what was at stake there. That with prayers and supplications, loud cries, tears, he was praying to his father, to him who was able to save him from death. And what does it say? And he was heard. The father heard his prayer, and there was a reason. What's the reason why he heard his prayer? Because of his reverence. Some of your translations say piety. Because of the, the fearfulness that he had. Is, is, are those fit, some of your translations? What's different? If you got something different. Submission. The actual word means this veneration because he was making this a holy moment. That this was between him and the Father, and the Father heard him because of his piety. But how did the Father answer his prayer? Now look at the description of this in Hebrews 5, 7. Prayers, general prayers, supplications. These are the inner yearnings of a person's soul. Loud cries. You know, we're just given a little bit of the wording that they recorded, and John doesn't even record any of that. He just records what happened, that he was in a garden when all this happened. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke record some of the wording of Jesus' prayer. We don't get that the loud cries or the tears that he was at moments weeping about what was in front of him. But all of this is interesting because it was directed to the one who was able to what? Save him from death. Now, isn't it interesting that he was praying to the one who was able to save him from death? You know, any time that you see a, a reference in the New Testament, whether it's Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost or Paul preaching, when it refers that Jesus was raised from the dead, it's really an awkward translation because the word is never from, it's the word ek, meaning out of. And death is always plural, dead ones. And it's almost like they're making a point that Jesus stepped into something that everybody steps in, but he's the only one to come out the way he came out. That the Lord saved him out of the dead ones. Yes, he indeed died, literally died on the cross. He did not faint. He did not pass out. He, did not, he was not put in a tomb. This is called the swoon theory of some people that want to dismiss the resurrection. Jesus just passed out took him off the cross, put him in a cold tomb, he revived and went into hiding. That is, I'm not making that up. There's people who believe that. I thought, he survived somebody stabbing him in the chest? He survived? 
But, you know, it's the resurrection. Jesus literally died. He went into death. And he's saying here that he was able, the one who was able to save him out of death. And do you realize it's the same wording? It's ekthanatos. It's mean out of, not plural, out of the experience. That the one who is only, the only one who is able to save him out of death. And see, what we're thinking, what we're thinking when we read that is that he was able to save him from the cross, the, the dying on the cross, that, that moment that he was going to happen later on that next day. We think that he was praying to the one who is able to save him from that, but that was never in question. And it's not in question when you see the disposition of Jesus change dramatically from that hour of intercession to how he was when he got through, Right? And you never see him resisting anything going on with him after that. You never hear him asking anyone for help. He did say on the cross, I thirst. There's seven sayings, and there's a, that's a good series to preach. But one of the things we can come away with is this. Jesus trusted his father with what was on the other side. He did say, I have power to lay my life down, and I have power to raise it back up. Did he not say that? But he chose not to do that. And this is what's going on in this prayer. He is appealing to the only one that he can trust to bring him out of death. No wonder one of the last things that Jesus said on the cross was, Father, into... He's still talking to the Father, isn't he? Into your hands... I commit or give my spirit. And what he's saying is, I trust you to get me out of this, to save me out of death's grip. When Jesus, prior to Gethsemane, you don't see him stressed out in the upper room, do you? He's serving the Passover meal. He's having them drink the cup and eat the bread. And he's just, if anything, if anything is going on in the upper room, he's encouraging them. They're the ones getting stressed out. To this, to this great passage that we read in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. He's telling them, don't be troubled. Let it not be afraid. If you believe in me, you can trust the Father in my Father's house. He's encouraging them. You don't see him depending on them until you get to Gethsemane. And he goes into the inner part of that garden and he leaves these three guys who is his inner group. These are his chief captains of the disciples. And he says, stay awake. And he says, I need you. I need you to stay with me. I need you to stick with me. And he's under this great stress. But what is going on here? I read you the first prayer in Matthew 26. The best way to know how God answered his prayer is to keep reading. Because when you keep reading, you find out how the Father was answering his prayer during this hour long. We know it's an hour because he kept telling the disciples, can't you stay with me for at least one hour? While I'm in this great turmoil of soul, while I'm under this great stress and pressure of death itself, stay with me. Pray with me. The first prayer went like this. Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not not as I will, 
but as you will. But you go down to verse 42. This is the second prayer. And I'm, I want you to just tell me is, if this is the same prayer. Okay? Are you listening? Reading? Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Same prayer? No. What's missing from the first prayer? He gets an answer. He gets an answer between the first prayer and the second prayer. We think he prayed the same thing all three times. No, he didn't. If it is possible, it's no longer prayed. That has been taken off the agenda, off the options. No more we think that he might have went every time. If it's possible, let it... No, he's kind of like was resolute here. Something happened between the first prayer and the second prayer. How many of you know that God's Word has a way of filling in our blanks? Well, Luke fills in an important blank here between the first and second prayer. This is Luke 22. And I doubt many of us pay much attention to this, of what happens between prayer one and prayer two, because he is kind of like resolute. Well, if it's not going to happen, unless I drink it, your will be done. It's kind of resolute. But look at Luke 22, verse 43. After he prayed the first prayer, as Luke records it, this little note. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. How about that? An angel shows up between prayer one and prayer two. We already know from Hebrews 5 that the Father heard him because of his piety, his submission, his, his approach to this moment. But this is how the Father, the Father heard the prayer of Jesus, sent an angel to strengthen him for what purpose? If you see the difference between the two prayers, Jesus does not ask if it's possible again, but instead he's gotten heaven's answer. He's got an answer from his Father. And the answer could very well be something like this, that he is sending an angel to help him not to avoid the cross, but to be strengthened as he approaches the cross and to let him know that it's going to work. That what is going on in the middle of that garden is going to turn into a successful endeavor. No wonder, no wonder that possibly the last word that Jesus said on the cross was the word tetelestai. And it's translated, it is finished. And it's a perfect tense, meaning it is done and it remains done. It's an intense form of a verb. We, trans, we have to have three words to translate. It is finished. But in that idea, it was, this is done. We finished it. We've done it. This was him saying, I've concluded everything that it was, I was supposed to do on the cross. It is finished. And this was really a prayer about obedience. This was a prayer about the cross. This was not a prayer about death itself. This was a prayer about the cross and his obedience to the cross. Let me take you to Hebrews 5 again. In the following verse, in verse 8, it says, right after it talks about the, to him who is able to save him from death, it says, and though he was a son, 
Yet he learned what? Obedience through what? His own suffering. This was a, this was a, a moment of obedience. And the suffering that led him to say, not what I want, but what you want. And isn't that what obedience is? Obedience is not that you agree with somebody when you obey them. How many you tell your children to obey me only if you agree with me? Is there any pressure to obey when you agree? There's, that's not a task to obey when you're like, count me in. Obedience is only pressured when you don't agree with what you're being told. And it said that Jesus learned to submit his will to the Father's will. His humanity was incredibly burdened. And yet in that turmoil, in that stress, he was learning to give way again to obey the Father. He learned obedience. It was a prayer centered on obedience. Was he under pressure? Yes, was he under stress? We can't, we, we can't uh, imagine what was on him. Gloria Gaither uh, helped write a song. It's no wonder that he stumbled when he walked up Calvary's Road. And the whole point was because the weight of the world was on him. The, your weight, your sin, my sin, the weight of the whole world's sin was on him in that moment. And this was decision time. It wasn't decision time after they arrested him. It was before they arrested him. He could have had his men resist. He even told Pilate, you know, if, if, if my kingdom was supposed to be here, we would have fought. But it's not from here. It's from another world. And this, is, this takes us back to something that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, a great passage about let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. But verse 8 says this, and Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Yet he learned obedience through his suffering. He was obedient. Obedient to what? To the point of thanatos, death. Even that death on the cross. Jesus, as exalted as he was in his preconceived state in Mary's womb, as, as exalted as the Son of God, at the right hand of the Father, he left that exalted state to come into the womb of a woman to do what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, to finish the work. And in doing so, he let go. It says that he, he didn't hang on to any of the things that he had a rightful heir to. He let go of all of those divine attributes. He never did anything. He never took shortcuts. He always depended on the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. He did not do anything simply because he's the Son of God. He yielded himself completely to the Father and only did what the Father told him to do and only functioned in the ministry under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. He never did anything on his own. And he said these things were available to him, but he let go of them. And that's when it says, and being found in the form of a human form, he humbled himself and took upon himself a servant and took upon himself to be obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Not just any death, but the stars, the stake, the cross, the, 
incredible, despicable shame that it encumbered on a person to be killed that way and to be tortured that way and to have a slow death that way. It was that that he looked forward to. It's hard to say that. How could you look forward to? Well, Hebrews 12 gives us a little insight. You know, it's after the great, you know, litany of people who were people of faith in Hebrews 11. And he talks about all of those who had went on before, that, that group in the past that was on the line when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then the writer of Hebrews encourages us, seeing we are some compassed with these, so great a cloud of witness. He says, let us run with our patience, with patience a race set before us and look to Jesus as the model. How did he describe Jesus as the model? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, listen, listen to the words, because this, this doesn't make any sense, logical, log, logically, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the staras, the joy set before him, what kind of joy? Because he, he settled in the Garden of Gethsemane that it's all is well. When he got up that third time, what did he say to his disciples? He didn't say, can't you stay awake? What did he say? Sleep on. <laughs> it's like, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know if he did that gesture, just, okay, you guys can sleep. I'm Okay. I don't need you anymore. In fact, all of you are going to be running from here in just a little bit. <laughs> like I told you, you're not, you're not sick. I got one hour for you to stick with me, and you couldn't even do that. But he doesn't, you don't see the stress on Jesus. You don't, see, you don't see the agony of death. You don't see this turmoil when he comes back to his disciples, and he says, it's okay. It's going to be all right. We can leave now because those who are coming from me are near at hand. And you don't see any like resistance. For the joy set before him. What was the joy? Somewhere in this time of prayer, the Father let him know it's all going to work. And everybody from that point passed who are people who trusted God by faith, and those from that point forward who will trust Him by faith are going to be okay because you made up your mind there's no turning back. There's not anything they could have done to Him to make Him say, all right, I changed my mind. Could He have changed His mind? I asked that question in my pre-service question and answer that I do in the kitchen. Was it, was it possible for Jesus to step back away from the cross? And the person I was talking to said, yes. I don't think we would understand the struggle that Jesus had if it was all just set in stone. It was destiny. 
If that was the case, he just walked in and said, I need to spend an hour here just to say I spent an hour in prayer. But no, this was real. What was going on in Gethsemane was real. This is the greatest prayer Jesus ever prayed because none of us would be sitting in this room right now if he didn't finish that prayer the right way. And the Father answered that prayer. He said to Peter, put your sword up. No need to fight. He walks over and takes the ear laying on the ground and puts it on the side of Marcus's head and says, there you go. All well. To me, see, in my imagination, I couldn't, I would love to see what Marcus said to his wife when he got home. Well, you got blood on your shoulder. Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. What happened to your ear? Nothing, nothing, nothing happened. Well, you got blood on your shoulder. Ah, you wouldn't believe it, I told you. And here's one of the guys that's after him, one of the guys that's going to beat him up, and he's, what does he do? You don't see Jesus stressed, do you? Why not? Because he made up his mind that he was going to follow the Father's purpose. That prayer was for you. That prayer was for me. Lauren, if you can come to the keyboard. And now, you know, I love this about a testimony I heard on, on tape about a, a young lady where she says, everything for a believer centers around taking up your cross and following Jesus. You see, he said, I got my cross, I got my stars, but if you're going to follow me, you have yours. Right? Did he not say that? He says, now, if you're going to follow me, what's the cross that he's calling you to carry? What's he calling you to obey him in that you don't feel comfortable or you don't feel called or feel led it's amazing how many decisions we make that way isn't it well I've done that all my life now it's time for someone else to do that so what is your cross you see what repelled Jesus more than anything was not following through that was not surrendering to the purpose of his father And here we are in our lives. What is the cross he's calling you to pick up and follow him? Lord, I pray this morning for healing.